How can I follow Jesus if I can't see him? Jesus teaches us how not to worry from John chapter 14. Plus, does the New Testament really say that Jesus is God? We're going to dive into one of the most important doctrines you should know today. My name's Tom Abib, and you're listening to The Word Grows. Okay, well, welcome to The Word Grows, a podcast about Jesus, faith and ministry, where we let the word do the work. Uh, first up, a quick announcement. Um, for those of you who go to my website, uh, thewordgrows.com, you might discover now that it's a broken link, and that's because I didn't get round to paying the yearly fee for the website. So uh, it happened because I forgot, because um, I forget things a lot, um, and I forgot to pay for it, and I went to go onto it. I'm like, oh, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, but then after thinking about it for a while and looking at how much it would cost to you know, renew uh, the website, um, I thought, actually, I don't think I really need it. Um, all of my podcasts are coming out for free uh, through Podbean, uh, and all of my communication pretty much happens through my Facebook page, which is also for free. Uh, the word grows on Facebook. So I'm going to save a couple of hundred bucks and just run my podcast purely through my Facebook page and Podbean from now on. Um, so if you want to find out anything about um, uh, the podcast, just go to my Facebook page on The Word Grows. Um, if you want to uh, listen to my podcast, you can just go onto any podcast app and search for The Word Grows uh, or go to the Podbean, uh, go to Podbean website uh, and search for The Word Grows as well and you'll be able to get it there. Uh, still super easy. I just get to save money, which, yay, that's always a good thing. Um, and with that, I wanted to resurrect something that I'd hoped would happen, but it hasn't really happened that much so far, and that is comments. So I would love to know how you've found the episode after you've listened to it. And in particular, if you have any questions, I'd love to answer those questions. So if you want to ask a question, when I post up the episode to Facebook, just leave a comment underneath uh, and you can ask a question. And then if the question is pretty simple and straightforward, I can try and answer it in the in the comment section. Uh, or if I feel like, actually, this would be a good thing to talk about on the episode, uh, I'll even bring it up in my next episode. So I'd love to get a little bit of you know interaction going on uh, in this podcast. So please go over to my Facebook page. And when, uh, when I post uh, an episode, uh, go on uh, to that post and leave a comment. That would be fantastic. All right. Well, let's, uh, with that out of the way, let's jump into one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, John chapter 14. Now, uh, John chapter 14 is an awesome chapter. Uh, it's got that classic line that uh, you would have learnt if, if you're a Christian as a kid, you would have learned as a kid, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus says. Uh, I can't really hear that now without hearing that kid's song, I am the way, the truth. Anyway, I shouldn't sing on microphone. That's a really bad idea. Anyway, you know the verse, really famous verse. That's John chapter 14. But the key thing about John chapter 14 is actually about making sure that we are not anxious followers of Jesus. John chapter 14 verse 1 starts, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Now, why would they be troubled? Well, it all comes back to what Jesus has told his disciples earlier on in in chapter 13, and that is that he's leaving them. Uh, And the disciples freak out, and you can kind of understand that, right? You know, they've left everything to follow him. Uh, They've given up everything, and now he says, yeah, by the way, I'm not going to be around for much longer. 
How are they going to cope? What should they do? Now, this is actually a key question for us as well, because this moves the disciples' experience of Jesus into the same experience that we have of Jesus. And that is that we are asked to follow Jesus without ever seeing him. We are asked to follow Jesus without being able to have a personal conversation face to face with him. We're being asked to follow Jesus without actually watching him walk ahead of us and being able to follow in his footsteps, so to speak. How do you do that? That's really, really hard. And it's, it, it does trouble us as, a, as Christians. I don't know if it's just me, um, but I'm sure that you're in the same boat. It's hard to follow Jesus when I can't see him anymore. It's hard to follow Jesus while he is in heaven. And this is really what Jesus is turning to now uh, as he deals with this issue of the fact that he's not going to be with us anymore. And he reassures us, he reassures his disciples and reassures us by saying, do not let your hearts be troubled about this. Okay, so what's the answer then? How, how do we make sure that we're not troubled by the fact that we can't see Jesus and yet we need to follow him? And the answer is faith. This is the key to not being troubled. This is what Jesus says. Chapter 14, verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Faith is the key to continuing to follow Jesus while he's not here and you can't see him. And the first thing that Jesus wants us to trust in him about is that his going is actually a good thing. Because by leaving us, he is going to prepare a place for us. Now, uh, this, again, is something that you've probably heard a lot. If you've ever been to a funeral, uh, you may have heard this passage being preached on as well. Uh, And it's a picture of Jesus going away uh, in his father's house. There are many rooms and he is going to prepare a place for us. And I think usually when people hear that, they kind of conjure up in their mind a picture of Jesus doing some spring cleaning in his dad's house, you know, getting a, a guest bedroom ready for you. That's that's not exactly what Jesus is trying to communicate here. Uh, When he says that in his father's house there are many rooms and he's going to prepare a place for you, uh, the key thing that he's communicating here is that you are going to be in God's presence. You are going to be in the father's home. Remember John chapter 1, whoever believes in him will be given the right to become children of God. You get to be part of the family. You are going to be in God's home one day. And this is what Jesus is saying, that by going away, he's actually preparing a place. That is, he is going away so that he can bring you to God. That's why he leaves us. He leaves us to bring us to God. And so what is this preparation work that he's doing? You know, is, is, is he just getting the vacuum cleaner out and just making sure that, you know, heaven is really nice for us when we get there? There'll be flowers, there'll be, you know, little mint on our pillow or something like that. No, no, actually, the preparation work that Jesus does to bring us to God is what he's been talking about all along. Uh, it's his death on the cross, and then his going away, his resurrection and his ascension. And that is how Jesus prepares a place for us, or to put it in language that you're probably more familiar with, that is how Jesus brings us to God. He dies on the cross, he rises again, and then he ascends to his Father in heaven to intercede for us. And he's saying that all of this actually needs to happen in order for there to be room for us with God so that we can come to God. And that's why Jesus is leaving. That's why he's not here with us anymore. It's because he, is, he has left to bring us to God. 
I've mentioned this before, but John's gospel can really be broken up into two parts, summarized by two ideas. And that is that Jesus has come from heaven to reveal the Father, and then Jesus returns to heaven via the cross to bring us to the Father. Uh, and, And this is what Jesus is saying, that he is returning to heaven via the cross so that he can bring us to the Father. And so this is a reassurance for us. Yes, Jesus is no longer going to be with us, but it's not because he's abandoned us in any way. In fact, it's the complete opposite. It's so that he can bring us to God. And he gives us a a second assurance here as well, and that is, look, if I'm going to go prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back to take you to be there as well where I am. And, And what that means is, is that The Christian life now as we experience it is a period of waiting. It's a period of faith. Remember, that's what Jesus says. You believe in God, believe also in me. This is what the Christian life is like now. We have Jesus' promises. It's the promise of room with God, the promise of being with God, and the promise that he's going to one day return to take us there. But we don't see it yet. And so the Christian life now is a life of faith where we need to trust Jesus, we need to trust the Father, and they are incredibly trustworthy. This is the logic. Let me read uh, verse 3. Listen to verse 3 here. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, so that you also may be where I am. Now follow the logic there. Look, if if I'm going to all this trouble of preparing a place for you, if I'm going to die on the cross, rise again, ascend into heaven, and I do all of that for you, don't you think I'm going to then come back and bring you to be with me? If I'm going to the cross for you, I'll definitely come back for you. Uh, We've got a lot of migrants in our church. um, And one of the really tragic, but I I guess almost necessary things uh, that these migrants uh, do when when, when they come to Australia is that they leave their children behind. Uh, Their children usually stay with their family, with aunties and uncles or grandmas and granddads. And and the the husband and, and sometimes the husband and wife, they will come out to Australia on their own. And they do that because they need to kind of establish themselves here first and get set up financially uh, before they bring their kids out. But they're doing all of this for their kids. That's why they've come out here. They've come out here to try and set up a better life for their kids. And so it will be madness for the kids to think that the parents have actually abandoned them. They haven't abandoned them. They're doing this for them. And they should be reassured if if they're going to sacrifice all of this to come to this country to set up a life for their kids, then they can be guaranteed that they're actually going to come back and bring their kids to be with them one day. Now, that's not a perfect analogy because humans aren't perfect and sometimes humans don't do the right thing or don't follow through on their promises. But Jesus absolutely is perfect and absolutely does follow through on his promises. And his point is this, if I have gone to the cross, risen from the dead, ascended, and I did it for you so that you can be with the Father, then I'm definitely going to come back for you. And so the experience of the Christian life right now, it is hard. Uh, It is one of waiting And it is one of faith. And we look forward to the day when uh, faith will give way to sight and Jesus will return and he will bring us uh, to be with him. But until then, the way, the key to not being anxious is to trust in Jesus, trust in the promise that he's given us, that he's preparing a way and that he'll come back for us. Okay, so that's the first bit of John 14. But then Thomas pipes up with his own question. And the question is, how can I know the way? Okay, so I I get that you're going to prepare a place for me, that's great, but how can I make sure that I will get there? How do I know the way to the Father? 
And, and again, this comes back to the issue of assurance. Yes, Jesus is going, how do I know that I'll be there when he returns? And in Jesus' answer, I think we have um, one of the most important two verses in the Bible. Okay, so, so listen to Jesus' answer in, in John 14, verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Now, there are three claims here uh, that Jesus makes uh, to be the way, the truth, and the life. And this pretty much sums up what John's gospel is all about. So let's go through them. First, Jesus is the way, that is, he's the way to the Father. So John tells us in chapter 1, verse 12, whoever believes in him is given the right to become children of God. When Jesus first meets his disciple, he alludes uh, to Jacob's ladder to show that he is actually the ladder or or stairway to heaven. He's the way to God. Uh, He claims in chapter 2 and then again in chapter 4 to be the true temple of God. He is where we come to meet with God. Chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus, only those born again can see and enter the kingdom of God. And And those who are born again are those Uh, who believe in the Son. Uh, Chapter 5, Jesus shows that to honour him is to honour the Father, to dishonour him is to dishonour the Father. Chapter 7, we see that the Jewish leaders cannot come to the Father because they've rejected the Son. And so Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come. He says the same thing in chapter 8. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And if you don't believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Chapter 9, we see that Jesus gives spiritual sight to those who trust in him and he blinds those uh, who reject him so so you won't see the way. Uh, Chapter 10, Jesus gives the illustration of the sheep who follow his voice and and they are the ones who will enter into the abundant pasture. So again and again and again, we see that Jesus is the way to the Father. What about the truth? John chapter 1 verse 4, in him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. Okay, so he's the creator of life, therefore he has the answers to life. And chapter 1, he reveals uh, to his disciples uh, that he has foreknowledge. He's met met the disciples, uh, he knows the disciples before he's met them. He says the same thing to the Samaritan woman. Samaritan woman goes to the town and says, come and meet someone who's told me everything that I've ever done. Uh, Chapter 3, he tells Nicodemus that he speaks and testifies what he knows because because he's the son of man who's come from heaven. Uh, And the reason that people reject his truth is is because they love darkness. Uh, John the Baptist, at the end of chapter 8, this is a really important one, uh, he reinforces this by claiming that the one who comes from above is above all and he speaks as one from above. And moreover, the the one who has the spirit without limit is going to be the one who speaks the word of God without limit. Uh, So he speaks the truth. Chapter 5, Jesus defends his testimony with the three witnesses to his word, John the Baptist, the works that he's doing, that is his miracles, and then the words of the Father from the Old Testament. And and chapter 6, Peter realizes uh, when most of the disciples abandon Jesus that that Jesus is is the one that he should trust because he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Chapter 7, Jesus further argues that his teaching is not his own. It comes from the Father. And then chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And if if his disciples hold to his word, then they'll know the truth and the truth will set them free. So again and again and again, we see in John's gospel, Jesus is the truth from the Father. And then he is the life. Um, again, chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life. He's the creator of the world. And so just as he, was, he gave life in the beginning, so now he gives new life to those who believe in him. Uh, his miracle of turning water into wine, it harks back to the prophecy of Isaiah 25 that speaks of the day when death will be swallowed up forever. He teaches Nicodemus that eternal life is found through the one who's lifted up on the cross and that whoever believes in the Son will have eternal life. 
John then reinforces this at the end of chapter 3. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So he is the key to life. Believe in him, you have life. Don't believe in him, you don't have life. Chapter 4, he offers living water to the Samaritan. He sends out his disciples to reap a crop for eternal life. He heals the official son who is close to death. Chapter 5, his miracle signals that he brings Sabbath rest to the world. And Jesus declares that as the Father has life in himself, so the Son, so he's granted the Son to have life in himself. And so all those who hear the voice of God will live. In chapter 6, Jesus declares to be the bread of life, life that lasts forever. And we see that this bread is his body and blood shed for us. As we learn in chapter 7, he gives life because he gives the Spirit, the stream of the living water that will flow in anyone who believes in Jesus. Chapter 8, Jesus makes the outrageous claim that whoever obeys his word will never taste death. And of course, chapter 10, Jesus declares that he has come uh, so that his sheep may have life and life in abundance. And then finally, chapter 11, he roars out to the grave, Lazarus, come out, and a man comes back from the dead. And so again and again and again, we've seen that Jesus is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. And so what's the answer to Thomas's question, what is the way? Well, it, you know, I, I kind of feel like saying to Thomas, hello, you were there. Haven't you, haven't you lived John's gospel? It's Jesus, trusting in Jesus. If you want to be with the Father, if you want to know the Father, if you want to have life from the Father, trust in Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus spells out. No one can come to the Father except through me. I mean, this is an outrageously unpopular thing to say, uh, to claim that every other philosophy, every other religion, every other ism out there is actually sending you in the wrong direction. It is a lie and it will lead to death. And that is the claim that Jesus is making. And it's the reason why we do everything that we do as a Christian. Remember, Jesus is trying to reassure us here. He's not going to be physically with us. And because of that, we can be worried. We can be worried that we, are we actually on the right way? We can be tempted to go off in different directions, to find other paths that look easier or, or more appealing, to, to listen to other truths because everyone else around us seems to be agreeing with them and we're looking really dumb or, 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 we look, or, or everybody is hating us because of the truths that we follow. Or we could look for life in more immediate, tangible ways. We look around at the friends uh, that we have, we look at their life on Instagram or on Facebook and we think, oh, I feel like maybe they've got life and I don't. And it's incredibly tempting to believe all of this when Jesus isn't right in front of us. And so what is Jesus' answer? It is faith. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Remember what I did. Remember what I said. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Stick with me and you'll come to the Father. Okay, so the last question uh, that we'll look at today uh, is Philip's question. And that is, show us the Father. So, so verse 8, Lord Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And I, I think this is the classic question. Maybe it's the question of our generation, but it's the classic question that every follower of Jesus wants to ask. God, just let me see you, and I'll believe. I'll be set for life. I, I won't have any other issues. Just let me see you, and I won't worry anymore. That's all I'm asking for. Now, what's Jesus' response to this? Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Now, Jesus is saying, again, what we've seen all along in John's Gospel, right? Jesus and the Father are one. 
what does John say right at the beginning of his gospel in the prologue? No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. In other words, Jesus is saying to Philip, look, you have seen the father, okay? You know me, but this is crucial. Okay, if what Jesus says is going to be at all useful for us, how is it that Jesus makes the father known? So this is really important because if the way that Jesus makes the Father known to Philip is because Philip has seen Jesus, then that's great for Philip. I'm happy for Philip. He's going to be comforted. He can see the Father. But that does nothing, nothing for me. See, our response to Jesus will be, okay, fine, Jesus. I'm glad that if we see you, we've seen the Father. So can you show me you then? (laughs) And, And then that will be enough. Do, do, do you see the problem that we have? If the way to see the Father is, is to see Jesus, I can't see Jesus anymore. And so how does that help me then? And so the key is to listen to what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Now, did you notice it? How is it that Jesus shows us the Father? It is through his words. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. See, it's not that when we look at Jesus physically that we see the Father. In fact, Of course we don't, because Jesus took on human form. When people looked at Jesus physically, they did not see the Father. In fact, his physical appearance teaches me nothing about God. It doesn't reveal God to me. No, what what reveals the Father are his words. His words are the Father living in me, doing his work. This is how Jesus makes the Father known. And that's so important to us because I can't see Jesus, but I have his words. And so I can see the Father when I listen to Jesus' words. You see, we live in such a seeing is believing sort of world that that we kind of find this hard or impossible to fathom. But Jesus is saying, look, seeing is not believing, hearing is believing. And in fact, we know this if we've read John's gospel, because what about all those people who did see Jesus? You know, did they believe? Almost none of them did. In fact, they saw Jesus and then they actively sought to, to murder him. See, seeing wasn't believing for them. On the contrary, a blind man was able to believe in Jesus. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that you can see the Father without seeing You see him by hearing the words of Jesus. And, of course, then Jesus wants to back this up with evidence. So he says in verse 11, Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. In other words, don't forget the miracles that came out of my words. You know, when I I spoke my words and I said, Lazarus, come out, and he came out of the grave, doesn't that show that in my words you can see God? They back up his words. But if you want to see God, if you want to see the Father, Jesus says, listen to my words. And this brings us to the last thing uh, that Jesus says that we'll look at before wrapping up here. And that's in verse 12. 
Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, this passage is so often taken out of context and misunderstood, you know, name it and claim it. If you, if you, if you just believe enough in Jesus and if you, if you ask for it in his name, he will give it to you. Look, he's promised that. And, and that's completely missing the point. Um, the, the key is that, that it's when you ask things in his name and you ask so that the son, so that the father may be glorified in the son. Um, but the key to understanding what Jesus is actually talking about here is to figure out what Jesus is referring to by the works that he's been doing. He says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. What are those works? And Jesus has already told us this. Listen again in verse 10. The words I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Okay, the work that Jesus has been doing is the work that he's been doing through his word. And what is that work? It's giving life. Remember John chapter 5, what is the work of God? It is giving life now. So John chapter 5 verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but is entrusted all judgment to the son. So the work of God that Jesus is doing now is giving life through his word. And later on, the work that he will do is judged through his word. But right now, the work of Jesus is giving life through his word. And so what's Jesus saying when he tells us that whoever believes in him will do the works that he is doing? He's saying, whoever believes in me will give life through my word. That is the work that they'll be doing. See, we've just been told that if we have Jesus' words, we can see the Father. But now we're told that if we have Jesus' words, we can do the work of the Father as well. That is, we can be part of the work of the Father and the Son in giving life through Jesus' words. And Jesus says, this is the the mind-blowing thing, Jesus says, we'll do greater than what Jesus accomplished on his earthly ministry. Because now that he has gone uh, to the Father... He will speak his words through all of his disciples as they go to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. And so his work multiplies as more and more people hear his word and more and more people receive life. But of course, this is still his work. And so if we want anyone to receive life, it's not just that we speak his words, but we need to pray. We need to pray to the Father and ask that he will give life as we speak the Son's words. And we have this reassurance that he will do it. And so this is what Jesus is saying at the end here. Now that he's leaving, you get to take part in God's work by speaking Jesus' words. And as we pray, God will hear our prayers and answer them according to his will. And he will give life to the world. We've seen that if we have Jesus' words, we can see the Father. And if we have Jesus' words, we can do the work of the Father. Okay, so let's sum all of this up. This section is all about not being troubled by the fact that Jesus is going away. We are. We are deeply anxious as Christians about the fact that Jesus is not right here in front of us. It is hard. It is a time of waiting. It is a time where we can't see. And so what is the key? The key is faith. 
We need to trust in Jesus. That is what the life of a Christian is about right now. Trusting in Jesus while he is not here. First, don't be troubled because he's going so that you can come to God. That's why he has gone away. And he will come back to bring you to be with him. Trust in Jesus. Second, don't be troubled because he is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And so whilst everyone else around you is going to be trying to send you in different directions and speak lies to you and, 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 and offer you things that look like life but are actually death, trust in Jesus and know that he is the key to coming to the Father. And third, don't be troubled even though you can't see the Father, because if you have Jesus' words, you have seen the Father. And you have the incredible privilege of engaging in the Father's work, of sharing Jesus' words so that people can have life. And so we need to trust, have faith in Jesus, and not be troubled. And that's John 14, 1 to 14. Okay, so now I want to do another Doctrines You Should Know. And since we've looked at, you know, the oneness of the Father and the Son, I thought it would be good uh, to talk about what is known as divine Christology. That is the doctrine that Jesus is God. Now, this is a massive topic. So all, all I want to do today is just take you through a paper that, that was written by a theologian named Richard Borkham. Uh, the paper is called God Crucified, and you can read it in a collection of essays called Jesus and the God of Israel by Richard Borkham. I'll leave a link uh, under this post on the Facebook page um, so that you can follow it up if you would like. Now, it's, it's heavy academic stuff, uh, but if you really want to look into this, I, I recommend reading it for yourself. But just a warning, it is, it is a high-level academic paper. And in this paper, Borkham deals with the question, does the New Testament really say that Jesus is God? So I'm going to try and take you through Borkham's argument, which, which I found to be really, really helpful. I want to start with this question. What is it that makes God, God? Okay. If you had to define God, what would you say? What makes God, God? Now, let me start with what would have been the ancient Greek answer. Okay. Uh, the ancient Greek answer would be about his nature. Okay. This is answering the what question. What is God? Or even more generally, what is divinity? Uh, and in, in Greek philosophy, before and after the time of Christ, God was defined by his attributes. So his ingenerateness, that is, he wasn't made. His incorruptibility, that is, he can't die. His immutability, that is, he can't change. Uh, his omnipotence, he knows everything. Okay? All of these aspects of his nature are, are used to describe, to describe what makes God, God. And I think usually that's how most people would think today about what makes God, God. But what I want to ask is, is this actually how the Bible talks about God? Um, there's no doubt that the Bible does talk about the attributes of God, but it isn't interested so much in the what question as the, as the who question. Okay, the Bible tells us who God is. Uh, if you were to ask what makes God God, uh, a Greek philosopher will give you a bunch of attributes, but the Bible would introduce you to someone. It would introduce you to Yahweh, to the true and living God. So think about it. When you read the Old Testament, and, and, and God is talked about, God is not discussed as some kind of concept or abstract idea to be debated on. No, God is talked about as an active person, a character, 
someone who does things and, and, and someone who has an identity. Uh, you come to know God by getting to know this character in the Bible, not by studying a bunch of principles or uh, about some distant impersonal deity. Now, this is the fundamental and key idea that we have to understand if we want to see how the New Testament shows that Jesus is God. Because when the Bible talks about what makes God God, it primarily focuses on the identity of God rather than the nature of God. And I'll get to this in a second, uh, a little bit later on, but when it comes to the New Testament, the way that the New Testament writers show us that Jesus is God is not necessarily by telling us again and again and again, oh, by the way, Jesus is God, Jesus is divine, but rather by showing that Jesus shares the, the one unique identity of God. And that's Richard Balkan's argument that we're going to have a look at. Uh, so, so by way of analogy, if you wanted to ask what makes Tom a bib, Tom a bib, uh, you could answer that question in two ways. Uh, you could talk about my biology, you know, my sex, my height, my weight, my eye color, my hair color, all the way down to my genetic code. Or you could talk about me, you know, my name, my personality, what I like, what I don't like, what I've done in the past, what I'm good at. One is a question of nature, the other is a question of identity. Now, don't mishear me, the Bible totally does talk about God's nature, but when showing what makes God distinct from everyone and everything else, what the Bible tends to focus on is God's identity. So let me show you what I mean. Uh, Richard Borkham, he divides God's identity up into two broad categories in the Old Testament. Uh, First, in the Old Testament, we know God in terms of his relationship to all reality, and second, we know God even more intimately in terms of his relationship with his people, Israel. Uh, Put another way, we know God as the God of the universe and as the God of Israel, and that is his identity. Now, like I said, we'll get to Jesus in a second, but this is crucial groundwork first. So let's first start thinking about what makes God God in relation to all reality. Richard Borkham outlines two things. First of all, in terms of his identity, he's the creator of all things. And secondly, he's the ruler of all things. So first of all, he's the creator. God acted alone in creation. So Isaiah 44 verse 24, I alone stretched out the heavens and by myself spread out the earth. Okay, the the point is God had no helper in creation. And so immediately, I want you to imagine a, a white piece of paper and a big, thick black line drawn down the middle that separates God and everything else. On the God side of the piece of paper, you can write creator. And on the everything else side of the paper, you can write creation. And this is a key plank in what makes God God in his divine identity. Who is God? He is your creator. And he had no helper. Only God is the creator. Okay, that's part of his identity. The the Old Testament also talks about God as the sole ruler of the world. It's tied to the fact that he's the, the only creator. If God created everything, then he rules over everything. So in the Old Testament, God has many servants, and some of them are incredibly powerful, you know, his angels. But none of them ever share his throne. Uh, Often the image in the Old Testament is of God high and lifted up above everyone and everything else. So again, that big, thick black line down the piece of paper, on the one hand you have God, on the other side you have everything else. On the God side you can write ruler, and then on the everything else side you can write servant. And that's another key plank in the divine identity. Who is God? He is your ruler. 
And both of these truths lead to a third truth as well. If God is our creator and God, if God alone is our creator and God alone is our ruler, then God alone is to be worshipped. No other being may be worshipped other than God. And, and you see how this is connected. If God alone is your creator and ruler, then God alone is the only one to be worshipped. So again, you've got that big, thick black line down the middle of the piece of paper. You've got God on one side. You've got everything else on the other. On the God side, you can write, must be worshipped. On the everything else side, you can write, must not be worshipped. Now, let me pause here to compare how the Bible portrays God to how Greek philosophers portrayed God at the time. Because their notion of divinity was not tied up in identity, but attributes. And because of this, you could actually still have lesser divine beings. You could have people who were a little bit God because they a little bit shared in God's attributes. Okay, there was a hierarchy or a spectrum of divinity that started with the notion of the one God, but then it went down through the gods of the heavens and the demons of the atmosphere and the earth, right down to even humans who were regarded as divine. And because of that, you could worship a range of gods. You have the pantheon. You have all the different gods that you could worship. And in fact, there were even human beings uh, who were kind of demigods. You had sort of, you know, the Hercules type character all the way down to Caesar, who was considered to be uh, a demigod. And the reason that they could believe that is because what made God, God were his attributes. And so if somebody shared a little bit in God's attributes, then they could be considered a little bit God. But the Bible paints a radically different picture of what makes God, God, because the Bible hones in on God's identity. The Bible talks about God as a person, as someone that we can be in a relationship with not just some force or idea out there. And because of that, you can't have degrees of God any more than you can have degrees of Tom Habib. Somebody might share my hair color, but that doesn't make them a little bit Tom Habib. No, there's only one Tom Habib. It's me. That's my identity. And, and even if people share a little bit in my attributes, they don't, they don't actually get to be a little bit of me. And so it's really important that we understand that what makes God God is his divine identity. He alone is the creator. He alone is the ruler. He alone is to be worshipped. Now, that's God's identity in relation to all reality. Remember that big, thick black line with God on one side, everything else on the other. But there's also, we can also think about God's identity in relationship to his people Israel. And this is where we get a, a bit more of an intimate picture of who God is. So let's start with his name. Uh, when Moses asked God, who should I say has sent me? In other words, who are you, God? What, what makes you God? God gives him his name, Yahweh. I am who I am. This is what makes God distinct. Yahweh and no one else is Lord. And it's as we read through the Bible that we start to get to know Yahweh by what he does. So Yahweh is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. Yahweh is the God who parted the Red Sea. Yahweh is the God who guided them by day and night, who led them into the land. And we get to know a little bit about his character as well. Uh, so he describes himself to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So again, what should we write on the God side of that thick black line? Well, we can write Yahweh. And with that name, we can put all of the great acts that he has done for his people. This is who God is. This is what makes God God.
Now, like I said, we haven't even got to Jesus yet, but I wonder if you can already see how this is going to help us see how the New Testament talks about Jesus as God. Let me sum up uh, Richard Borkham's argument so far. In the Bible, what is it that makes God God? It's not primarily his divine attributes like omnipotence. Rather, it is, uh, it's his identity. Who is God? He's your creator. He's your ruler. He's the only one to be worshipped. He is Yahweh who brought his people out of Egypt. That's what makes God, God. And with all of this crucial groundwork, we now can turn to Jesus in the New Testament. Because this is a light bulb moment. It, it, was, it was a light bulb moment for me. And, and it will fundamentally change the way you read every page of the New Testament. I know it's a big call, but it's true. If you look for where the Bible says that Jesus is God and think only in terms of his nature, you'll only find it in a few places. Uh, two of them uh, you can find in John's Gospel, uh, right at the start of John's Gospel in the prologue. John says pretty clearly that Jesus is God. And uh, Thomas's confession right at the end of John's Gospel where he says, my Lord and my God. So the Bible does say Jesus is God. But it's not in like a thousand places, which you kind of would expect, wouldn't you? I mean, it's a big truth. Why isn't that plastered over the New Testament? But when you start to think of God in terms of his divine identity, you will see Jesus described as God in almost every page of the New Testament. So let's start with the idea of God as ruler. Throughout the New Testament, we're given the picture that Jesus has been exalted where? to the throne of God, and he rules over all things. So John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things, oh sorry, 5.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John 13.3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. And and it's everywhere. Acts 10 verse 36, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Ephesians 1.22, he put all things under his feet. Philippians 3.21, he subject all all things to himself. He is seated above all angelic powers. Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In other words, any time that Jesus is described as ruler over everything, he is being assigned the identity that belongs to God alone. See, the writers are using Bible language and Bible ideas to describe Jesus as God. Remember that big thing thick black line where you've got God on one side and everything else. The New Testament writers are putting Jesus on the God side because they are saying that he is the ruler above everything else. And remember, there's no such thing as degrees when it comes to God. It's not that someone can be a little bit the ruler of everything else. No, only God. He alone is the ruler. And yet the New Testament writers are saying that Jesus is the ruler of everything and everyone. Let's move on to the idea of God as creator. Start with John's gospel, where we've been. We're told all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. John places Jesus on the God side of that thick black line by saying that he is the creator. And remember, God had no helper in creation, Isaiah. And so if Jesus is the creator, Jesus is God. Or take 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, a really famous verse. There is one God, the Father from whom all things were made. 
oh sorry, the Father from whom are all things and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and we through him. Or Hebrews 1, 2-3, through whom he also made the universe. Or Revelation three fourteen. these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Or Colossians 1, 15, 16, for in him all things were created. So there's that big black line where God is creator, everything else is created, and where do the New Testament writers put Jesus? Not in the creation side, but in the creator side. He is God. And then, of course, if Jesus is the creator and ruler of the world, well, then he should be worshipped. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11, where we're told that every knee will bow before Jesus, it's a picture of Jesus being worshipped. In Revelation 5, we see the living creatures and elders falling down before the Lamb who is on the throne. What about Matthew 28, 17, where we're told that all the disciples worshipped him as he declared that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. Remember that big black line. God must be worshipped, everything else must not be worshipped, and where do the New Testament writers put Jesus? As God. And we see that Jesus is given the divine name Yahweh. There's an Old Testament phrase, to call on the name of Yahweh, Psalm 8, Isaiah 12, Joel 2, Zephaniah 3, Zechariah 13. This phrase talks about calling on our personal God, Yahweh, who has rescued us before and will rescue us again. It refers only to the identity of God. But in the New Testament, it's referred to Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord is referring to calling on the name of Jesus. Acts 2, Acts 9, Acts 22, Romans 10, 1 Corinthians 1, 2 Timothy 2. And think about in John's gospel, when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. He's taking on the name of God that God gives Moses in the book of Exodus. See, again and again, we don't necessarily hear the words, Jesus is God. But we hear convincingly, and again and again, we hear that Jesus shares in God's identity. Oh, the one I love is Philippians 2. He's given the name that's above every name. It's funny, I was once door-knocked by Jehovah's Witnesses, and I invited them in and started chatting to them. And I was trying to help them see from the Bible that Jesus is God, and so I took them to Philippians 2. Now, J-dubs are often trained in talking to Christians, and so these guys, they thought they knew what I was going to say. They thought I was going to go to the beginning of chapter 2, where it says that Jesus uh, is, was equal with God, in very nature God. Uh, and, and so they had their comeback ready for that, except that's not where I took them. Uh, instead, I went to the end of Philippians 2. Jesus is given the name above every name. And so I asked them, I said, listen, tell me, what is the name that's above every name? And before realizing the point I was making, one of them blurted out, oh, well, it's Jehovah. And I said, exactly. Jesus is given the name Jehovah. Jesus is Jehovah. You can't get a name higher than that. That is Jesus' name. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is God. And this is Richard Borkham's argument. Think about God in terms of nature. And, you know, the New Testament won't say that much about Jesus as God. We'll talk about it in a few places. I think there's probably about eight or nine uh, verses that are really convincingly saying, yes, Jesus is God. But think of God in terms of his identity as creator, ruler to be worshipped, Yahweh. And you see, almost on every page of the New Testament, 
that Jesus is being enfolded into the identity of God. Now, why do the writers do this? Well, I think it's because they don't want us to collapse the Trinity. Uh, you know, by, by making just a statement, Jesus is God, uh, it, it can be confusing. You can say, well, well, hang on, are you saying that there's more than one God then? Because we know that there's God the Father, and but now you're saying Jesus is God. Are you saying there's more than one God? No, we're not. There's only one God. Or, or, or are you saying that God just takes different forms? You know, sometimes he's the Father, sometimes he's Jesus, sometimes he's the Spirit. No, we're not saying that. See, the New Testament writers are very careful not to collapse the Trinity or not to multiply the Trinity to, uh, and turn us into tritheists. The writers are very carefully enfolding the Son into the identity of God so that we can see that the Son and the Spirit share in the identity of God with the Father and that the three persons of the Trinity are all the one God. Now, at the end of Richard Borkin's paper, he, he turns this all around in a, in a truly brilliant and, and um, moving way. See, up until this point, we've been seeing that the Bible says that Jesus is God. Okay, look at his identity. Jesus is God. But if that's true, if the man, Jesus Christ, who lived and taught and healed and suffered and died and rose, if he is God, what does that teach us about God's identity? You see, Jesus is actually the ultimate and final revelation of God's identity. He is Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, once we've established that Jesus is God, all of a sudden we have to grapple with the fact that God is Jesus. Jesus doesn't just share God's identity. Jesus ultimately reveals God's identity. He shows us who God really is. And this is huge, especially his death and resurrection, the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. What does that teach you about God? See, on the one hand, how is this consistent with the God of the Bible, the God who creates and rules, the God of Israel? After all, God's identity doesn't change. How can this God be so humiliated on a cross? And on the other hand, what does this teach us that we didn't know about God already, about the God that we thought we knew? You see, we want to say not just that Jesus is God, but that Jesus reveals God. And so this comes to the title of Richard Borkham's paper, which is God Crucified. Because in Jesus' death on the cross, he ultimately reveals God's identity as the God of justice who deals with sin and the God of love who dies for his creation. Let me read to you a quote from Richard Borkham. In this act of self-giving, God is most truly himself and, divine, and defines himself for the world. And that's what Jesus tells Philip, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. But where do you look? You know, we've talked about the words of Jesus revealing the Father, and that's true. But ultimately, you look to his death on the cross and the words that speak about what that death means. Look at his humiliation. Look at his shame. Look at God crucified. And you will see the true identity of God. And guys, this is a game changer, you know, because 
we don't just want to say Jesus is God. We want to say God is Jesus. You know, when you are talking to a Muslim or a Hindu or a Buddhist or even an atheist about God, you need to ask yourself, who are you talking about? When they use the word God, who do they have in mind? Are you just talking about some philosophical concept of a divine attribute, a first cause, some force out there? Or are you talking about the God of Israel, the creator and ruler of the earth? Because he is the real God. And once this is established and we see that Jesus is this God, we discover even more about who God is. He is the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the God who came down to the earth to serve. He is the God who climbed up on a cross to die for you. Look at Jesus and you see God. And what do you see? God crucified. That's who God is the God who died for you. All right, well, that's it for today. Uh, We'll do a Signs of Grace in a second. But just a reminder that if you like this show, please do go and subscribe on your podcast app uh, and make sure um, you uh, go and subscribe on the podcast app so that you know when the next episode's coming out. And make sure also to share, uh, share this episode on social media with whoever you think will like it. We want more and more people to hear uh, about this podcast so that more people will be growing in the Word. Also, just a reminder that um, we're doing everything uh, from Facebook now and uh, with, with Podbean. Um, so if you uh, want to find out about what's going on in The Word Grows, go to our Facebook page, uh, The Word Grows. Uh, and if you have a question, please do leave a comment uh, underneath the post for this episode, and I'd love to get back to you uh, and answer you. All right, let me finish up with the signs of grace. And I want to talk about CMS, uh, Church Missionary Society. I just got back um, from CMS Summer School a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was my first time going. It was a really great conference, and uh, CMS are amazing. Um, they've sent uh, over a thousand missionaries overseas to share the message of Jesus. Uh, their vision statement is a world that knows Jesus, and, and it's incredible to think about what missionaries do. You know, we're, we're talking about people giving up everything to go halfway around the world where they can't speak the language, they don't know anyone. Um, It's going to be really tough on their family, especially their kids, but also their marriage. Uh, And they're going to do what's really a thankless task that's probably going to make it even harder to make friends over there. Um, Jess and I have good friends who are getting ready to be missionaries in Ireland. Uh, We have other friends who are getting ready uh, to be missionaries in Taiwan. And and as I thought about the incredible commitment of missionaries and the the amazing amount of time and effort and energy uh, that goes into running an organization like CMS, the thousands and thousands of people involved, the the millions of dollars that are going towards all of this, you know, it made me ask, well, what is driving all of this? Why would we do any of it? And of course, it's because of what Jesus said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That truth, it, it drives everything that CMS does. And it should drive everything that we do. And, and, and I am incredibly thankful for all the missionaries um, who, who are overseas and, and who are planning to go. And it, it's an incredible sign of God's grace um, that people are going uh, to, do, uh, to do this work. It, it is an incredible grace of God that we all get to be included uh, in his work of calling the nations to himself. And whether you're a missionary uh, or, or you're just here at home, um, we now get to do the work of God through the words of Jesus. Uh, So we're growers. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We're called to do his work. Uh, Let's get out there this week and do it. 